0: Continuing today in the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, we'll be looking specifically at the last part on the coming of the Lord, but I want to read the whole chapter, so if you would open there to 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. Years ago... When I first became a Christian and was going out doing visitation with my pastor, he told me the story of an elderly couple. They were, I think, in their 70s or 80s. They were worrying about dying. And their concern was, the Lord was not going to return before they died, and and that would be a disaster for them. And they were very worried. And to which I just scratched my head and said, but... That's not how it should be. We have this wonderful passage we're going to study today on the coming of the Lord, which promises that the dead in Christ will rise before we join Christ in the air when he returns. And I wondered why they didn't understand that. Well, eschatology, end times, we all know is a hot topic debate item. Lots of conflict, lots of discussion, lots of disagreement and sadly, I think people overlook then the real meaning of the passages that talk about the end. And one of those passages is what we'll be looking at today the story of the return of Christ and what it should mean to the believer, both those alive and dead. So before we look at that, let's read the chapter. Finally, brothers. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more, for you know what instruction we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all of these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives us his Holy Spirit. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands, as we have instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this encouraging passage, and pray, Lord, that as we consider it this day, that you'd open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our thoughts to understand, and our hearts to receive the truth of this passage, that we would look forward to the day of the Lord, whether we live or die, because we will then be with you and with your Son. So we ask for grace in this study in Jesus' name. Amen. So he starts off here encouraging us. He doesn't want us to be uninformed, ignorant. But he wants to talk about those who are asleep. Now, what does he mean by asleep? It's it's a euphemism for dead, the first death. But it's not soul sleep. Soul sleep is this this heretical teaching that there's no, that you die and you are asleep until you're raised from the dead and there's nothing in between. But that's clearly not the teaching of the Bible. Jesus taught about this, about what happens when people die in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. He said there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day, wonderful food. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. Remember, Abraham was called a friend of God, and so he's in heaven with God, and Lazarus was brought to heaven to where Abraham, his forefather, is. And the rich man then also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham from afar off and Lazarus by his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the finger his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus and the like men are bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm that has been fixed, in order that those who would passed from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to here. It's in Luke 16:19 through 26. So clearly, immediately after death, just like the thief on the cross, remember Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Not when the resurrection comes. That was 2,000 years ago, today. Here we see these men, Lazarus is taken by angels to heaven. And the rich man who is apparently a sinner and a wicked man was cast into the fires of hell to be tormented. They were both very active, even though they were apart from their body. Their body went to the ground, to the dirt, was buried. But their souls went to where they belong. And they were alive and they were active. If you look through the book of Revelation, the souls of the saints are in heaven, praising God and crying out to God, how long until you deliver us? How long until you restore all things? How long until you bring Justice on those who killed us. Body and soul stay separated until the resurrection. Our body is doomed to die. Remember, the wages of sin is death. And all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But there is eternal life promised in Christ Jesus. That was Romans six twenty-three and 3. Anyway, the eternal life for us begins... At the resurrection, really, but our soul never dies, our soul never sleeps. We will be alive with him from the day we die until eternity comes. That eternal life is still in us, even though our body is dead. It's in the earth, it returns to the dust. Remember what God said to Abraham? I mean to Adam as his judgment? In Genesis chapter 3, for the sin he committed, God said to Adam, Because you listened to the voice of your wife and has eaten, eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and dust you shall return. Genesis 3:17 through 19. We die, we return to dust our bodies, but our soul lives on in heaven if we are believers. So we shouldn't be ignorant about those who are asleep. We know where they are. Those who belong to God go to heaven. Those who are against God, sinners and the unrepentant and unregenerate, they go to torment and fire. And so Paul says here in our passage, do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Why do they have no hope? Well, all men know God. All men know God's righteousness, his justice, his goodness, his truth, and all men really they know in their heart about hell. That knowledge is part of who we are, it's part of what God has revealed to us. Remember in Romans chapter one, verse eighteen and following, God says, or Paul says through the Holy Spirit, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and all the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, for God has shown it to them. They know God's justice, they know God's goodness, they know God's love for what is right, and they know God's wrath for what is wrong. And they live their life how they want, but they have that fear of God, that fear of death, that fear of hell. And that is what the fear of death is really all about in men. What we can know about God is plain because God has shown it to us in the universe, in creation. But they twist and pervert that. A little further down, verse 21, he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. God darkening their hearts as part of his justice for their penalty for their sin." Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images that resemble mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Yes, locally they worship the mountain. Those who have no hope in the living God, the one true living God, they look for hope elsewhere. They look for hope in their man-made gods. They look for hope in their man-made philosophies They look for hope in their political systems. But all of these things men look for for hope are spiritually bankrupt. They provide no hope. And so man lives in fear of death. Now, yes, some are delusional enough to think their fantasies are true, and when they die, they'll be reincarnated, or they die, they'll go to a better place, or they'll go to heaven, or they'll live on as a spirit. They have these fantasies. But deep down inside, they are simply suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness and looking to hope from their man-made gods. Yes, it's important to remember, hell is real. Hell is eternal punishment. Revelation 14.11, the smoke from the torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Those who worship the beast in its image and receive its mark in its name. Jesus described hell as a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Just as we saw in the rich man in Lazarus. Being suffering in fire. Being eaten by worms. Of his second coming in Matthew 25, Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now when the Son of Man comes in his glory is what we're talking about in our passage here in 1 Thessalonians 4. It says, before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So God, before he even made the world, had a plan to save the souls of his people, to give them a kingdom, to bring them to him forever. Now, continuing later in verse 41, he talks about these things for a while. He'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. In verse 46, these will go away to everlasting punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. When people deny hell, when Christians and pastors deny hell, deny it as eternal toni- punishment, eternal torment, they're really denying Scripture. And not only are they denying Scripture, they're denying Denying the Holy Spirit, who is the author of Scripture, and they're denying Christ, who teaches it clearly. Sinful man fears death. He grieves because hell is their only real, legitimate expectation after death, and they know it. They may suppress that knowledge and unrighteousness, but deep down inside, they know. And when they think of death, it reminds them of their mortality and their punishment to come. But Paul's point here is not about them; it's about us. We should not grieve like them. They have no hope, only a fearful expectation of judgment, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Hebrews 10:27. As for us, it's different. Do you remember what we studied in the book of Philippians a while back? Paul says. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, it means more fruitful labor for me. Well, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. We do not grieve as others do, because we know what happens to our beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. They go right to heaven. The pain from their cancer, the pain from their age and their injuries and their infirmities and their sicknesses is gone. And God will wipe every tear and there will be joy forevermore. We don't we don't grieve as they do. Paul wanted to be dead, to be apart from the body so he could be together with his Lord and Savior. He's saying it's better to die and be in heaven and be on earth where we have trials and temptations and troubles. This is what it means when it says we walk by faith, not by sight. We will also desire this for ourselves as believers, trusting by faith that it is all true, that death doesn't have any terror for me. Yes, it might be painful, but I will then be with God. And that is our hope, trusting is faith in this. As in our passage today, it's better to be dead with the, and be with the Lord, but that doesn't mean we don't grieve for those who die. Now, they are now with the Lord, and that is great, but we don't grieve like those who have no hope except hell. For the Christian, we grieve because death is a parting; It's not a final one. But it is a parting. We grieve for the separation from them for a while. We grieve that on earth in this life, we won't see their smile again. We won't be comforted by their love again. We won't have the pleasure of their company again. We've lost part of ourselves when a loved one dies. And we grieve. And we grieve just as Jesus did. I remember being taught my whole life, real men don't cry. But you remember what happened when Lazarus died? Jesus went to visit them and he saw her. He saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. And he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, come and see, Lord. Jesus wept. John 11:33 33 through 35. We grieve for that sorrow. We grieve for that separation, for that loss. But we do not grieve as the hopeless grieve because we know where they are and we know we shall see them again. We know that if they have been truly born again, we'll be reunited with them and specifically here in our passage today at the resurrection. He says that we rose because Jesus also rose. As he rose, so shall we. You know, this is an important historical fact, often denied in this day and age by the liberal churches who say, no, the resurrection isn't real, that's just a story. Jesus' resurrection is an important historical fact and an important theological fact. Jesus told his disciples in advance that he was going to die and be raised from the dead. He said that when they were gathered in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. But it's important that it's true, it's real. The historicity of it, the fact that it is a historical fact, is really stressed by Paul for the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture, that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve, then appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all of the apostles, last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That's 1 Corinthians 15. He is not only stressing to them the truth of it, because the Jews laughed at resurrection. I mean, the Jews didn't accept Jesus' resurrection. The Gentiles laughed at the concept of the resurrection. Dead is dead. You don't come back from the dead. So he's stressing to them the historical fact of it, and telling them that there are people, there are eyewitnesses who have seen him alive and they can, they can talk to them. And it's an important theological fact as well, because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, how can we? In Romans chapter 6, Paul says, For we've been united to him in a death like his. We shall certainly be knighted to him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin may be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. If, now if we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Why does death no longer have dominion over Christ? Well, what is the power of death? Sin. The one soul who sins shall die. Our sin was placed upon Christ on the cross. He died for our sin. Why did he rise again? Because he had paid it in full. The Bible teaches that a man cannot pay for the life of a man. There's no ransom to give for his soul. It's not enough, but because Jesus is God, become man, when he died for us, he was able to pay in full for our sin. And once it was paid in full, death no longer had dominion over him. I can't stay dead. Why, why am I dead if, if there is no sin? And so he was raised from the dead. And the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans 6, 5 through 11. The resurrection of our bodies will come because Jesus paid it all and rose himself. And so his resurrection promises us our resurrection if we belong to him. This is a very important hope. If, again, from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? The Corinthians being, you know, philosophers and uh, enlightened people mocked at the, at the resurrection. He said, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ was not raised. And if Christ is not raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It has no meaning. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God. For we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. If it is true, the dead are not raised. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sin. Because... He wouldn't have paid the price for our sin if he wasn't raised. If he didn't earn the resurrection and eternal life, then he couldn't give it to us. Then all those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished if there's no resurrection. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all men most pitied. Why? Well, those who want to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted We give up much, we suffer much, and it's not for this world. It's not for the things we can get today. It's for that day when he returns and restores all things and rewards those who have worshipped him and served him. But in fact, he says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, oh, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead and the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is like the first harvest that comes up. We will come next. First Christ, then us. Remember the book of Job and all that Job suffered. What was his great hope? He says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, not another How my heart faints within me. Job chapter 19, 25 through 27. Job's great hope through all his suffering was that even though his body was rotting, he expected to die, return to dust. He knew that one day his Redeemer, the one who would buy his soul back and restore it to God, that one would stand upon the earth and he would see him with his own eyes. He knew he was going to be living again. And that's what, <coughs> that's what our hope is in that day. Our hope in that day is that we will be raised with God, raised with Christ and return with him. And that is what we see in verse 15 and 16. The dead in Christ shall rise. Now, he's making a point that there's no advantage to being alive at Christ's return. You're not going to miss anything if you're dead. You know, we fear, oh, I'm, you know, I'm out of town when my kids learn to walk. I'm out of town when my kids speak their first word. It's terrible. You know, we miss out. Well, if I'm dead and Christ returns in that great and triumphant day and everybody in the world sees him come on the clouds, if I'm dead, I might miss that. But no, he, Paul says, no, that's not how it works. Don't worry about that. This is where that passage comes out walk by faith not by sight. You know people use that in many different ways but let's look at it and it's in its context in 2 Corinthians 5. He's talking about us it says i know the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed meaning his body we have a building from God not made a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, this body, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but we would rather be fully clothed. So that what is the mortal body may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. Remember, when God takes out our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, he puts his spirit within us. That's what being born again means in the context of the Old Testament. For we are always of good courage because we have the spirit as a guarantee. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our ambition to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether it is good or evil. That was Second Corinthians 5, 1 through 10. Our hope is really not in being in heaven with God. Now that might sound shocking, but that's not our great hope. Our great hope is after Christ returns and we are raised and there's a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem and we are with God forever. That is what we live for that day, not for today, not even for the time we were with him in heaven while our bodies are in the dirt, but for eternity, for that great coming that he will have. Paul preaches that those who die in Christ are not to miss out on anything. They're first. They will precede the living. They will be raised before the living join him. And thus everything he does will be seen by them and they will be a part of it. And they will be there for that great celebration and that great amazing events that will happen when Christ returns. And that is where he goes on to the great glory of God's second coming. Now, this has been foretold from when he went to heaven. You remember in the uh, book of Acts, the disciples have come together. Jesus appears to them and they say "Say to the Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? There's great promises in the Old Testament of God reigning and walking with Israel and being their king, literally, physically with them, and of all the world seeing the glory of God's kingdom. And they wanted that. They were waiting for it. And he says, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Jesus says to them, it's not for you to know the time or the seasons that the Father has fixed on his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, and they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven, I, I can imagine, if you know I'm talking, talking to the risen Lord, and suddenly he starts to float up into the air with a cloud and goes to heaven. I'd be standing there going, Oh, <laughs> and they were standing there staring. And behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, men of Galilee, why are you stand looking into heaven? For this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way you saw him go to heaven. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, he says, behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. He will come again in a great and glorious splendor. And what does he say in this passage? The cry of great command. Who is Jesus, the Lord, the Lord of what? The Lord of the hosts of heavens. 10,000 times 10,000 angels at his disposal. He will come with a great cry of command, the Lord to his hosts. And the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. Now this one makes me think of the trumpets of Revelation. We find them in Revelation 8, 9, and 11. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, Jesus, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. That's in Revelation 8. In Revelation 11, the seventh trumpet is finally blown in verse 15. And when the angel blew his trumpet, there was a loud voice in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. This is talking about that great and glorious day and the trumpet of the Lord. And the dead in Christ shall rise. They shall rise from the dead. Back in 1 Corinthians 15, great passage if you're wondering about the resurrection, great chapter, verse 50, (laughs) I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, meaning the death of our bodies, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, (coughs) <coughs> at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed for so this imperishable body must, this perishable body must put on imperishable this mortal body must be closed in immortality when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. The law makes us aware of our sin, and our sin is what convicts us and is punished with death. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He paid it all. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Yes, the dead in Christ shall rise, and they shall be there for the whole glorious end. And the living, verse 17 and 18, will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord. Now, there's a technical word in verse 15 called perusia. If you ever read a book about eschatology, about the end times, that word comes up. That's why I use Greek today. I usually don't. (laughs) But the term was adopted from the Greek usage of that day and from Roman ideology. When the king was going to visit a city or a great person, the city prepared and eagerly anticipated their arrival. And it was the custom for significant members of society to go out of the city, meet the the coming visitor, and escort them back into the city. It didn't entail the king taking them and leaving with them, but the king coming in to be with them, and they would meet him. And that is the imagery of this parousia, this coming of the Lord, his return, is that the people of earth, well, the, the dead rise and are with him. The people of earth come to meet him. And then he comes to Earth with us, with his people, to establish his kingdom forever. And so it's an important term, and this is presumably that time that we just read in 1 Corinthians 15,52 and 53, that moment, that twinkling of the eye in which the last trumpet is blown, and the dead are raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. And That is when it starts. And so we will always be with the Lord, not just in death, but in the resurrection. And we shall all be there for all of the great things that will happen. We don't miss out. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, the sword. Romans 8.35. Nothing. God is all powerful. We don't need to fear those things. Now, if you start reading the book of the Bible from the beginning, you get to Genesis chapter 3 and the fall and sin and the curse. Kind of depressing. So just skip ahead to the end of the book. (laughs) Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers and sexually immoral, sorcerers and idolaters and liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Therefore, he says in verse 18, Encourage one another with these words. We don't need to fear death. We will be with the Lord. We don't need to fear death. We will be raised before the end comes so that we are there for it all. And we don't need to fear man. Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time nothing compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God, Romans 8:18 8, and 19. They can't do anything to us that God doesn't allow, and no matter what they do to us, we'll be with God in heaven. Many of the reformers who tried to reform the Catholic Church were martyred, and the practice was to burn them to ash so that they would have no place in the kingdom of heaven. They even dug up some of them who had died naturally and burned their bodies. But that doesn't matter to God. God can raise the body. He can create a new one from scratch. Do you think Abraham still has a physical body in this world? He died, what, 3,000, 4,000 years ago? It's ash. It's dust. From dust we came to dust we return. We don't need to worry what they do to us. God will be there. He will raise us. And so what should we do? We should live for that day. Work for that day. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. And he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Acts 17.31 Everybody knows that Christ will judge the world. And he will render to each one according to his works. By those who by patience and well doing seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self seeking and not obeying the truth, the truth being God's word, his revealed will, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, but also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. There will be a great judgment. There will be great rewards. When we store our treasure in heaven, that doesn't mean we put money in a piggy bank up there and it's safe. It means all of the good works we do, which God will reward us for, all of the things we suffer for him, all that we accomplish on His, for his kingdom Will be rewarded. This passage here is teaching us to take comfort in thinking about Christ's return. When things seem hard in this life, when health has got us down, when troubles and persecutions get us down, when inflation makes it hard to buy food, when violence comes to our cities and towns, remember the Lord will return. He will restore everything, and we will be there, whether we are alive or dead at that time. We will be there, and we will see all that he will do, and glory in him. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, like the Thessalonians, we do have a life of trials, a life of difficulties. We don't face the persecutions they did, but we face troubles of our own. And we thank you that you remind us of this great hope that your son will return, that we will meet him then, either raised from the dead or still living, That we will see all the glorious things that you have in store. We'll see his glory as he conquers all his and your enemies, see his glory as he judges the world, we'll see his glory as he judges and rewards his people. And we thank you, Lord, for the hope that we will be there for that and for an eternity after that. And we pray that we would be able to encourage each other with that hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.